This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, Whitman and our warming world. When I read Walt Whitman, who was born 200 years ago, I feel old and tired compared to him. Just listen to these lines from Leaves of Grass. Smile, O voluptuous cool breath at earth, far-swooping elbowed earth, rich apple-blossomed earth. Smile, for your lover comes. Of course, today as we face a future of climate collapse and mass extinction, loving the earth that much seems like a recipe for pain. And yet, people do. Poets do. Take Amy Nazuka Matato. She has published six books with titles like Miracle Fruit, Lucky Fish, and her latest, Oceanic. She's often compared to Whitman, the great American ecstatic poet, by critics, but also by this one high school teacher who had come across Miracle Fruit and decided to have students read it alongside Walt Whitman. Amy Nizuka Matato found out soon enough. I went to teach. My inbox was inbox zero. It was great. I came back and there was like 300-something emails. What? <laughs> the, the best thing that I could piece together just from the individual emails is apparently this teacher or the principal had passed uh-huh. out my work email to the entire school and then just invited oh. every student to tell me what they thought about my poems. She decided to make a poem out of these emails, a found poem. I didn't make anything up. The only thing I did was break lines. So it was all just compiled wow. from student emails. And so, and it was like, some were so sweet and so like almost just ridiculously generous. And I didn't include those really necessarily in the poem. What I thought was so yeah. funny is like the students who absolutely had no filter and maybe didn't connect <laughs> with my poems or what, but they absolutely had no problem telling me that they preferred Walt Whitman over me. (laughs) This is so this is um, Dear Amy Nizukiyami Tututil, which has uh, four O's in the last name. And the thing that I also found so funny is um, I have no O's in my last name. And with that particular work address, um, my previous work, uh, you actually have to spell my entire last name correctly. It was like one at Fredonia, you know, that kind of thing. So I just love that they spelled it correctly for the email address, and then they just gave up when they were addressing me. I don't even care. I'm just going to put four O's in this name. Um, so this is Dear Amy oh. Nazuki Yami Tututil. If I were to ask you a question about your book and sum it up in one word, it would be, why? I think I like Walt Whitman better than you. I just don't get literature, but for a fast 30-minute read, your book takes the cake. I like how you organize the lines in that one poem to represent a growing, twisting bonsai tree. I wondered, are you going to get a a rude reaction when you meet that one guy in that one poem? I guess you never know. You are so young to be a poet. You are very young. I also like how your poems take up an entire page. It makes our reading assignment go faster. In class, we spend so much time dissecting your poems and then deeply analyzing them. Sorry, I think I like Walt Whitman better than you, but don't take offense. You're very good, too. 
You are young. You are young and pure and just really want to have a good time. Thank you. We have taken a debate, and you are a far better poet than Walt Whitman. And I loved how your poems were easy to read and understand. Hi, my name is Alicia. We read your book, and I just loved it. We also read Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. There was no competition there. I liked your book a whole lot better. It was an easy read, but poetry is not my favorite type of literature. Sometimes I'm offered drinks and guys just try to talk to me, but I too just brush it off and keep on dancing. Every once in a while, the creepy mean guys try to offer you things and then they say something. So I was wondering, what would you do? Lastly, I wondered if you ever wrote a poem that didn't really have a deeper meaning, but everyone still tried to give it one anyways. Sorry, <laughs> Walt Whitman is better than you. <laughs> so yeah, that's... Thank you so much, Amy. That was a humbling day at my work. <laughs> Do you feel close to Whitman or is he someone that, yeah, you have kinship with, but it's not like you're thinking about him every day? I think definitely more the latter. I mean, absolutely. He, when poetry was first introduced to me, it was always him and Emily Dickinson were kind of the touchstones of what a poem can be and what a poem can sound like. Mm. And I very much um, consider a kinship with Walt Whitman in terms of the ecstatic and not being apologetic for finding awe and wonderment in nature. I'm thinking of the second part of um, Song of Myself, um, where he says something like, um, Uh, let me see. Houses and rooms are full of perfumes. The shelves are crowded with perfumes. I breathe the fragrance myself and know it and like it. The distillation would intoxicate me also, but I shall not let it. That's indoors. But the minute he goes outdoors, he says, the sniff of green leaves and dry leaves of the shore and the dark colored sea rocks and of hay and the barn and the sound of the belched words of my voice lucid to the eddies of the wind, a few like kisses. I mean, he just goes on and on, embraces the play of shine and shade on the trees as supple boughs. But like, <sighs> he was really one of the first people who was not, you know, apologizing for noticing. He was not apologizing for taking the time to smell the roses, to, you know, literally smell the roses and to scream about it, not just to say, oh, this is nice, but to scream on and say, like, I love this. Amy Nazuka Matatel was born in Chicago, but as a kid, she moved around a lot. My mother was um, one of the lead psychiatrists back in the 70s and 80s. So we would have these stints of moving from state hospital to state hospital. And these mental hospitals were very much kind of in rural areas. Mm -hmm. So they would be like four-year contracts kind of thing. Sometimes we lived in an actual house. Sometimes we lived on the grounds of these mental institutions. The school district would have to invent a brand new bus stop for us. Uh, and it usually was right under the sign that said, welcome to the state mental hospital. So everybody yeah. on the bus would be, you know, saying like, who are you girls? Are you patients? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. yeah. But I will say that my parents <laughs> took it upon themselves that even if we lived on what could maybe be a scary Uh, situation, like yeah. a, a mental hospital, um, they made sure yeah. most of our learning was 
going outside and figuring out, oh, I found this shiny pink rock. What is this? Oh, oh my gosh, it's quartz. Um, or finding, what is this leaf? It's as big as my head. I could wear it as a hat. Oh, the word is catalpa, <laughs> you know. Um, to say that word catalpa, yes. catalpa, that's still a word that just excites me so much. It never felt strange because I had names to the things that I was seeing. I could be centered in that way. I love your poem about that, too. Uh, uh, the poem is called Naming the Heartbeats. I have it in front of me. Do you, would you like me to read it? Yes, please. All right, this is uh, Naming the Heartbeats. I've become the person who says darling, who says sugar pie, honey bunch, snuggle bear, and that's just for my children. What I call my husband is unprintable. You're welcome. I am his sweetheart, and finally, finally, I answer to his call and his alone. Animals are named for people, places, or perhaps a little Latin. Plants invite names for colors or plant parts. When you get a group of heartbeats together, you get names that call out into the evening's first radiance of planets, a quiver of cobras, a maelstrom of salamanders, an audience of squid, or an ostentation of peacocks. But what is it called when creatures on this earth curl and sleep, when shadows of moons we don't yet know brush across our faces? And what is the name for the movement we make when we wake, swiping hand or claw or wing across our face, like trying to remember a path or a river we've only visited in our dreams? I think once you have names for things, there's kind of a tenderness and a relationship you start having with that, you know? So when you can actually name, oh, that's not just any tree that's being cut down. Those are silver oaks. Um, you start actually having a relationship and you don't want it to, to go away. You don't want it, you know, it's easy to depersonalize the outdoors when you don't have names for it. That's what our government does with depersonalizing whole cultures, to not say, yeah. oh, this was a 13-year-old boy named Jose mm -hmm. who was found like dead of dehydration from trying to cross a border. They would just say, yeah. oh, an illegal immigrant, so that you are encouraged to not care in some ways. Mm -hmm. Amy Nezuko-Matatil knows what it's like to be depersonalized, to be stared at for being different, the daughter of a Filipina mom and an Indian father. So in her poetry, the life forms that seem most alien are the ones she feels most drawn to. You don't write about cute creatures only, right? <laughs> or no. not even primarily. You know, there are a lot of like sort of slithering, you know, slimy And and your wonder is just the same. It's not <laughs> like you give preference to the ones that look like us or something, you know? And oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's a kinship. I don't know what the animals that maybe people think are um, weird looking or too creepy or something like that. Those are the animals I gravitate to, actually. Take her persona poem, Self-Portrait as Scallop. She wrote the poem after she found a picture of a scallop and saw that it had a row of bright blue eyes right underneath the rim of its shell. 
And so it didn't start out to be a self-portrait poem, but I really kind of wanted to worry that image a little bit. What is it like to be looking at the world with a hundred blue eyes, but also to be looked at um, with a hundred blue eyes, which is kind of what my whole childhood was like, you know, um, growing up in rural or suburban areas of the country. Oftentimes I was the only brown person in class, and oftentimes I was the new girl in class. And then so, of course, it was that awkward moment of um, introducing me, usually bungling my last name, and then every neck turned around with blue eyes staring at who is this new person, you know. Um, so that's kind of the origins of how this uh-huh. this poem started. Yeah. Do you want to read the poem? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> this is Portrait as Scallop. Let me see your shadow feather across my hundred blue eyes. I probably won't even notice the sea stars circling around me, ready to nibble and foam for days. Carry me in the gobble of your beak. I'd rather be set like a jewel in your nest, a sweet surprise after the sun dissolves into the Pacific, like a gold ghost sugaring my coffee. By then, I will have opened up to you. None of the eelgrass stories I clung to in my youth are better than this. I'm no longer silent. None of them told me if you were hungry enough, the small hinge of my umbo would creak and sigh. You bring the feeling of being a scallop in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'll never know, of course, but your poem comes as close as I'll ever be. You know? <laughs> Thank you. Oh, that's the best compliment. <laughs> Thanks. Um, do you feel like it made you also, like scallops, I think of them as really porous, right? Because they sort of filter the whole ocean through them. Oh, yes. And I was wondering if you feel that too. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's hard not to, right? I mean, I'm. Uh, it's hard not to absorb so much of what's going on in the world. That's mm-hmm. kind of the blessing and the curse of poets, right? In some ways. So, mm-hmm. uh, but it's also an extraordinary joy and privilege to be able to do something with that knowledge. Yeah, you teach or or have taught um, environmental writing. Yes, yes. I can imagine that a certain type of student signs up for that maybe students who are full of anger about what human beings are doing to the planet and so when they come to your class how do you how do you take them to that place of wonder how do you make them feel like that's okay that's like a viable answer Mm, that's such a good question I don't want to take that anger away because I think it's from mm-hmm. anger comes a lot of good activism. But mm-hmm. I think one thing that I try to do in all of my classes, not just my nature writing class, but is to be a model of joy and to be a model of mm-hmm. going back to, you know, Walt's ecstatic. I think it's my duty to be jubilant about the things we're reading, even if we're reading something that is talking about the devastation of oceans. Actually, this happened um, this semester, and it was from a, a very dear grad student here who had brought this question to me. This is just happening within the last couple of years, but there are some deer now that are eating birds. I don't know if you've heard mm-hmm. this. This has never happened in recorded history, that deer are huh. now becoming carnivores. And you know, so it begs the question, like, what are we doing to our soil that is making the deer not want to eat the berries and fruit coming from the soil 
that makes them think they want nutrients and they have a taste now for bird flesh in ways that they never have before. Like, what is going on? And besides being scared and creeped out by it, I'm angry. I'm absolutely angry. So my students know that while I think many people associate me with joy and jubilance, I also can get very angry. And that anger is very fruitful for activism. Too often I see students who have one or the other, and I think that for environmental writers or people who are just learning how to write about the outdoors, I think it's important to have both. It's definitely important to not be carried away in the, oh, the sunset is beautiful and I'm going to write about it now. That's lovely and that's gorgeous, but now what? What else can you do? What else is kind of lighting a fire in you? Most of the students who come through are already noticers. They're already the people who are ecstatic, but they do have rage, and they don't know how to channel the rage into writing, and they don't know how to channel their ecstasy into writing as well. It seems like you've made a very conscious decision to not protect yourself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think it's almost, there's almost like a responsibility in some ways when the world and the news is so disgusting and so heartbreaking. I think that's all the more reason to turn to... I ask my students, when is the last time you were in wonderment of something? When is the last time you had awe over something? And at first, the kind of the silence is deafening, you know, and they, they actually have to think about that. And then they realize, oh, my gosh, it shouldn't be taking me this long. And I keep asking them mm-hmm. that. I keep asking them that through the semester until, you know, maybe by the fourth or fifth week, they're able to say it like right away. Or sometimes they can't wait till class and they just email it to me like, you know, Professor, <laughs> Professor Nazika Mandatil, I on the sunset I saw something called a green flash. Have you heard of it? You know? And, um, wow. So it's, I think it's a practice. I think we forget yeah. how to be in wonderment. And I think it's a great, I don't know, responsibility, but also... Um, it's contagious when you hear someone say, oh my gosh, I love how the silver on a silver oak is is winking at me, you know, that kind of thing. It's hard to yeah. not notice something yourself and then someone else will notice something and someone else will notice something. Yeah, I feel like noticing is contagious and I feel like kindness is contagious. So mm-hmm. I, think, I think if we just remember that, um, it's easier to do. <laughs> I love just how much... Um how much love there is in your poetry. Oh, thank um, you. I can't thank you enough for that because it's so, oh, we live in such sort of ironic times, you know, mm. and, and I like when people don't do that. Oh, thank you. That is um, the best, best, sweetest thing. And, you know, I'm, um, I don't have, I can't play it cool. You know, I've never been able to play it cool. Um, I don't have this kind of, you're right, like this ironic detachment um, to pretend I don't care about something or as my eldest son would say, mommy, you have no chill, (laughs) you know, and and that's basically, (laughs) that's really um, it. I've never been able to have chill. And that's why I think Walt Whitman really spoke to me, you know, he, his just unabashed use of exclamations 
Um, I don't use exclamations yeah. that much in my own poetry, but I absolutely have borrowed his ecstatic, you know, um, tone in in praising the outdoors. At the end of the day, what matters to me is that the people that I'm closest to recognize that um, that mm. I that I loved so much that I was a person who. Um, tried to help them show love and demonstrate love and be tender. Mm. You know, especially as a mother of, of two boys living in Mississippi, I want them to not be, just have their blinders on. I want them to be aware of what's going on in the world. I want them to be tough, but I also want them to be tender. And um, really, that's that's my absolute focus um, in life, but that's also my poetic statement as well, how to be tender and be aware of what's going on on the planet. Amy Nazuka Matatil teaches writing at the University of Mississippi, and her latest collection is Oceanic. You can find her poems on the Poetry Foundation website. And while you're there, take a deep dive in everything Whitman. Enjoy the short animated film Multitudes, read our quick intro Walt Whitman 101, and discover even more through our new Walt Whitman at 200s collection. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>